to the July 4th weekend, whether you're here in person enjoying the delicious air conditioning, <laughs> or at home, I hope by a cool lake or a breezy beach or in your own air conditioning. We're glad that you're here. In the midst of our celebration of our independence as a nation, we're following along with our chapters in Matthew. Today is Matthew 24, which I was assigned. It's all about the end times. <laughs> this chapter has been called the Little Apocalypse, and since I am apparently the resident scholar of the apocalypse, <laughs> or more likely because no one else wanted to try and tackle this, this is our chapter to work on together today. Let me just say, that even though we're in a chapter called The Little Apocalypse, I want you to enjoy your fireworks on the 4th of July. <laughs> it will only be sound and color for your pleasure, most likely not a sign of the end times, but just some good old-fashioned color and sound for you to enjoy. Our chapter for today has a lot to say about how to face the ending of things. But it's more like a quilt than one whole piece of cloth. There are lots of different events described, and they're all mixed up together. In this chapter, Jesus addresses the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen at the hands of Rome in 70 AD. He talks about the pangs and paroxysms of history that seem to point toward a finale. He talks about the coming persecution of the church that will seem an end and be an end for some faithful followers. He talks about his own coming using a word parousia that we will talk more about at the end of the, of the sermon. He talks about his coming being like the sudden arrival of a thief in the night. And he describes the way faithful followers will prepare for that coming. Here's a sample of Jesus' words in this chapter that we're going to focus on from Matthew 24. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. This is the word of the Lord. By the end of this sermon, what I hope for us all is that we have an understanding of what Matthew and Jesus are describing. And more than that, I want you to know we don't have to have a timeline to have the peace and confidence that we have nothing to fear, neither in going to God when our time comes, nor in the end of the world, whenever that will be. Is that a deal? Yes. Peace will be ours in Jesus Christ. As we approach these end time scriptures, you and I both know that there has been in American Christianity a desire to know that timeline of events that line, lie in the future. If we assembled all the books, movies, sermons, websites that had been published that give such a timeline, such a cast of characters, historical events that should be seen as signs of the end, we could fill the parking lot across the street 200 feet high or more. 
A few years ago, there was a billboard put up in Buckhead right on my way to work. It was just up the way. You may remember having seen it. It looked something like this. Hmm. You remember it? As I remember it, the sign just up the street was not quite as flaming as this one, and uh, it was as if the group were concerned about us all. They were being inviting instead of punitive. They were wanting us to respond to Christ if we had not yet so that we could be amongst those who were saved and taken to heaven. It definitely had that May 21 date on it that it wanted us to be aware of as the date of the rapture when they said true believers would be taken up to heaven and everyone left behind would be subject to judgment. This group put up billboards, 5,000 of them, all over the world. There was a run of events that led to these signs. In 2005, a, Carolina, a California pastor, Harold Camping, after a lifetime of very deep interest in reading the clues he saw in scripture about the end of days, he began to want to communicate that upcoming date of the end of the world to anyone who would listen. To Pastor Camping's credit, he was quite concerned that people clearly understand the urgency of the events he thought were coming. And he had quite a few parishioners who took what he said as gospel truth. Followers of his group quit their jobs severed relationships, gave away their possessions, and got ready to go to heaven. But when that date in May 2011 came and went, and the world went on turning, Camping and his group changed the date to October 21, and they put up signs that that day would be the end of the world. They said that what had happened on May, May 21 had happened, but it had been an internal spiritual event only. There was a lot of ridicule and disrepute for Mr. Camming, Camping and his group. I remember reading at that time between his two apocalypse dates that several Christian groups and pastors had sent messages of kindness, hoping that Camping and his followers would find a way to stop doubling down on their messages of the end and find their way back to a faith which was not based on them alone, knowing secrets, that the rest of Christendom did not know because they were focused on a secret that only they knew. When both dates passed and the world kept turning, this poor pastor admitted in a private interview that he no longer believed that anyone could know the time of the rapture or the end of the world. In stark contrast, to his previously very staunch position on the subject. In March 2012, he stated that his attempt to predict a date was sinful and that his critics had been right in emphasizing the words of Matthew 24, 36, about that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. He added that he was now searching the Bible even more fervently not to find dates, but to be more faithful in his understanding. He has gone on to his reward now, and I'm so glad he was public about his change of heart, glad that he got on a more sensible path in the end. 
but there are many other Christians who spend a lot of time and brain power to work out a timetable of when and where and who and what will bring about the end of the world. I've had many a beloved fellow Christian tell me solemnly that one new story or another was a sign of the end times. Christians have done this since the days of the early church. In fact, the early church was quite sure that God would bring an end to the world shortly because what worse sin could be committed on earth than to do away with God's Messiah? Surely Jesus would come back soon and bring an end. In fact, in the beginning, the Gospels were not written down because early believers did not think it would be necessary to pass down those stories since the end would come so soon. But as time went on, they began to think they should write down their memories of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, and most of all, the events of Holy Week. While eyewitnesses, disciples, his mother, and other participants in Jesus' story were still living and still able to share what they heard and saw. Even to the present day, and I have really messed up my online algorithm looking them up, there are countless ministries, websites, YouTube videos, and the like purporting to disclose where we are on the timeline of history. Every corrupt superpower is thought to be a character in the apocalypse. Every war is thought to be the one that will tip the balance. Political tyrants are thought to be actors who will bring down the curtain. And if we turned and looked back in time, we would see that in every generation, Christians who wanted to know the secret of the end have predicted that it was happening in their own time. How do we as Christians get off this treadmill, this endless cycle of predictions that turn out to be wrong. How should well-grounded believers in Jesus think about this subject? First of all, Jesus knew that this endless speculation would happen. And he warns us in Matthew 24 not to be led astray. See that no one leads you astray, he says. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. When we lived in Dallas, Texas, for my husband to be an intern and resident at Parkland Hospital, there was one of these false Messiah figures in David Koresh. Remember him? He set up a compound in Waco, Texas and told everyone in it he was Jesus returned to earth, but he behaved and talked like a devil. In the end, he and most of his followers perished. My husband and his colleagues at Parkland waited for victims to be airlifted there for treatment, but none ever came. Most of us are not susceptible to characters claiming to be the returning Christ. What we are susceptible to is people claiming various ways to save us, to get us rich quick to make overblown health claims that we are suckered into. There are influencers who want us to pay close attention to everything they say and recommend and sell us. People who want to give us a way to stay young forever. To anyone who would try to grab our attention and devour us and dominate us, Jesus would say, don't be led astray. Keep your focus on me. As well as not being led astray, Jesus tells us, don't be alarmed. 
The one who endures to the end will be saved, he says. We spend an inordinate amount of time being upset and anxious, don't we? We rehearse all the things that could go wrong even before anything does go wrong. Jesus tells us not to be anxious about tomorrow because tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, he says. John Acuff said that anyone who wants to make you anxious or afraid wants one of five things, your money, your attention, your obedience, your vote, and your company. Misery loves company, and the fearful are always trying to recruit new members to their community. Anytime Jesus encounters fear, he wants to dismiss it. Now, it must be said that there are some pretty scary images in this chapter, though. Wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquake, persecution, lawlessness. And then towards the end of the chapter, Jesus describes a kind of uncreation as the end of days approaches. And yet, he tells us not to be alarmed. In Luke's version of this chapter, Jesus says, Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Do you see that Jesus is telling us the world may get all anxious and fearful about the news or about the possibility of the end, but those who believe and trust in me will have a different mind and heart about all of this. The world may be running around saying, look over there, look, it's all over. But Jesus said, if you belong to me, you will know you can hold your head high because I'm coming for you. In fact, Jesus uses two symbols that may strike you as not very end-timey at all. These ways of talking about end times emphasize how differently we as Jesus followers can look at things. The first is in verse 8. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. I've been an active participant three times in the birth of a baby. <laughs> and though it has been quite a few years, I do remember what labor pains are like. I read up on the whole process. I did all the breathing exercises. I got prepared. I packed my bag. I got the nursery ready. I bought the tiny diapers and the tiny onesies. Then the day came when I thought, hmm, I don't think this is a Braxton Hicks anymore. I think this is a real one. We went to the hospital, we got inspected and monitored, and we waited. All the time, we could tell this is the day when two become three, and then four, and then five. And yes, labor pains are really intense, but what you can tell is there is a point to this pain. There is a baby making his or her way into the world. I can hear their heartbeat on the monitor sounding like a little horse galloping on the beach. This pain is bringing the new baby's birth closer and closer. It is pain with a purpose, and there will be a happy ending after the labor. In the same way, Jesus says that the events that alarm us are just like labor pains, early ones, wars, rumors of war, earthquakes, and so forth, yes. But in the end of it all, something new will be born. Something as good 
and as big a blessing as a new baby. Jesus is saying, this looks like destruction to others, but to believers, we are getting ready for God to bring us something new and good. Besides a new birth, the other positive image that Jesus uses to explain how we should feel is about a fig tree. To the Middle Eastern person, the great thing about having a bit of land is that you can plant something good that will feed you and your family, maybe for generations. And from the immensely productive and fertile luck of Israel on my spring visit this year, this is still a dream close to the heart of modern Israelis. We saw field after field of gorgeous date palms, olive groves, fruit trees, even banana fields with sunshades over them. We saw fields of grain and vineyards growing grapes. We saw orchards of fragrant lemon and orange trees. What in other places might have been left empty or fallow, the Israelis had planted with productive trees and crops. They only need to import 5% of what they eat. So it's been a holy land value forever to plant and tend food crops. You can see this deep desire in the Old Testament. Three times does an author mention sitting under their own vine and fig tree. For example, in Micah 4.4, as the prophet describes the coming days of peace and contentment, he says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. It's an image of peace and abundance, of contentment, of feeling beautifully provided for. It's an image of everything finally being made right by the Lord, right between God and his people, right between the people of many nations. All is truly well, and people sit content under their own vine and fig tree. In fact, this was a favorite verse of our first president, George Washington, and he returned to this verse as he contemplated retiring from politics and going home to Virginia, as we heard in the musical Hamilton. So as we sit with the images of new birth and the laden fig tree that Jesus gives us to describe the end of things, Imagine instead the anxiety of a person who disregards these and instead thinks the best way to spend their time is to try and find out where we are in the almanac of end time events. Imagine the anxiety of someone who thinks they must recover strewn obscure clues that are nearly impossible to pick up and that any peace you are likely to get hinges on trying to dig up these clues. Think of Harold Camping and his flock, who we learned about at the beginning of this sermon, and imagine the ups and downs they experienced, trying to anticipate two different dates when the end did not come, and the fallout they experienced, the disillusionment, the loss of faith and certainty. And instead, imagine the peace, the peace of knowing that all these things the end times and our own ends are in God's loving and strong hands that we need only live with our heads up looking for our Redeemer. Jesus himself asks us 
not to run after clues. He says very, very clearly that no one knows when these things are supposed to happen. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Humbly, I would say to you, if not even Jesus knows, we are not going to know, no matter how many flow charts and calendars we put together. Now, if we aren't supposed to rack our brains trying to come up with the secrets of the end, what does Jesus want us to do instead? We are to care for those he entrusted us with, our friends, our families, our church, our city, our world, with eyes, hands, and hearts open, seeing the hurts that must be healed, as he did, confronting the injustice and cruelty of the world, as he did, doing for the world the work he gave us to do, feeding the hungry, sharing the good news, standing up for what is right and healing a hurting world. He gave us plenty to do. You will remember that our ascension window, which is at the stained glass restoration place, while we do construction, has that amazing image of Jesus, bright and lifted up. At the bottom, the disciples strain to look upward at him, reaching out toward him. You may not remember the scripture that goes with that image. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 10, while he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Basically, these angels are telling them, don't just stand there looking up, close your mouth, bring your eyes down to the level of this world and do what he told you to do. That word is for us as well. We should be doing what he told us to do. And finally, that word that is used in this chapter for Jesus' appearance is parousia. It is used three times in this chapter for Jesus appearing, and it is a loaded word. N.T. Wright translates it, the royal appearing, the appearance of the king. More everyday use at the time of the gospel would use the word for the visit of a ruler or military commander to an area under his reign that he had not been to for some time. Jesus and the disciples seem to use this word as they talk about Jesus coming back at the end of time, the end of the world. When he comes, it will be like the coming of the king or master in many of Jesus' parables. He's coming back to his holdings to see how people have cared for his property while he's been away. Many of Jesus' parables describe lax and lazy and cruel servants who haven't done good work in his absence. They've behaved as though the master is never coming back and his property is theirs to use and misuse. The people in the master's household they were supposed to care for and supervise have been abused and beaten, but now the king is at hand. The king is returning. And how will he find his kingdom has fared under his servants' hands? No matter whether we're thinking of the last return of Jesus to earth at the close of time or our own last days and our reunion with him at the close of life, we want the king 
to find out that we have watched over his kingdom well and carefully. We want to find that Jesus has seen us do his work and that we have made his world look more like heaven than hell. So friends, I hope you've heard from Jesus today about the end times. Number one, don't be led astray by flashy false gimmicks and promises. Keep your focus on Jesus. Don't be alarmed or afraid. You have new peace in Jesus, new life. Ripe fruit is coming. Know that Jesus himself does not know the hour of the, or the day, so let go the idea of a calendar. Instead, fill your mind and time with doing the things Jesus asked you to do. And lastly, there will be a time when the king returns or when you and I go to him. We truly can be at peace with that. The peace of those who faithfully serve the king. Now you and I are coming to the time where we join the king at his table. There will be a day when we join him at the other end of this table that stretches through history, time, and eternity. Our friends who have gone on before us are celebrating at that wedding feast of the Lamb even now. So as we come to the time of the table, let's pray together. Dear Lord, we are at peace, knowing that instead of anxiously trying to put together clues, we are to serve you as King until you come again in glory. We trust in the timing of the Father in whom we live and move and have our being. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.